Welcome to tonight's Saturday Night Special, episode 154. I'm Nick Kennedy, and I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to become a good entrepreneur is key, and one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mader. You can do a lot of things really well, but if you don't have the courage to start, you don't have a job. It's, it's over. And that's the first step. And I think there are one of the, one of the principles is tell the truth or at least don't lie, right? Like always seek and tell the truth. What does that mean? Seeking and telling the truth is one of the scariest things in the world to go do because if, if I acknowledge that I have blind spots and you tell me the truth about my blind spots. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In tonight's Saturday Night Special, I interview Nick Kennedy. Nick talks with you about his journey from the founder of a private airline to focusing on becoming a good entrepreneur. Nick and I talk with you about his book, Good Entrepreneur, and why he defines entrepreneurship differently from most. And Nick also shares with you how his faith journey intersected with his entrepreneurial. One area that a lot of folks need some help with is around the area of productivity getting not just more things done, but actually getting the right things done can be really tough. I've got a course called Productivity for Your Passion that's designed to help you do this and then to hold you accountable and walk with you so that you can tailor productivity not just to be getting more done, but actually getting the right things done. What's more, we take the approach of looking at your personality and how you actually look at things in the world and tailor the productivity system to your personality. Because the truth is, a lot of the systems that are out there are written really well for somebody with a particular personality type. But if you have a different approach to things, they just don't work. But there's tools and techniques and approaches that you can take that will work for anyone. And we help you do that in Productivity for Your Passion. Check it out over at inspiredstewardship.com slash launch. Nick Kennedy is a serial entrepreneur and an executive life coach with over 20 years of experience building successful ventures. After accumulating over 2 million airline miles traveling for work while losing hours of productivity and family time, Nick founded Rise in 2014. A private airline, Rise created a two-sided marketplace that connected busy business executives with private plane operators to redefine travel in order to regain control of wasted time. By its acquisition by Surf Air in 2017, Rise had served thousands of travelers with private flying services. Prior to Rise, Dick began his career as a business development manager for EDS. He then went on to build multiple healthcare-centered businesses, Now he serves as a coach with over 4,000 hours of experience for high-powered executives. He helps stuck executives become fully integrated spouses, parents, and business people. Nick splits his time between Texas and Colorado, along with his wife Angela and his kids, 
Will, Sam, and Jane. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks, Scott, for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about in the intro about you've done a lot of different things in your lifetime, in your career, one of which is you founded a private airplane, private airline as well. How did your life change through all of those moments of being an entrepreneur to what's brought you to where you are today? Man, all of those moments. So I talk about in my book and I talk about the idea that entrepreneurship is the actual title and definition of entrepreneurship. It's a French word. It means the bearer of risk. Anybody who bears a risk is an entrepreneur. And so in all these ventures that I was part of, I we were bearing risk. We were taking risk on to try to go create something that hadn't been created before. And I think probably the airline was the, the creme de la creme, if you will, with regards to the biggest amount of risk you could take. It's a, it's a notoriously hard industry to break into. It's a notoriously hard industry to run a business in. And I think we'll get into this later, but there was this deep longing in my heart and my soul to be seen as someone who was important and to be seen as someone who was welcomed and invited. I had this kind of burden around my neck, if you will, the shame mechanism that I wanted to get rid of. And the reality is I was a, I'm a good entrepreneur in the sense that I'm a successful entrepreneur in the sense that very few people are going to be able to stop me to doing what I want to go do. And that makes you for a good entrepreneur. It makes you for a really bad husband and a really bad dad and a really bad friend. The thing I've learned about is that it is the quickest way to move from the life that you are given to the life that you want. It's hard. You're most likely going to fail. You have to be a little masochistic to go do it. But if you're successful in it, it's the quickest, most efficient way to fundamentally change your life and probably your next couple of generations' life for, for the future. And so I've learned if you have a big enough idea and if you can go execute on it, you can really make material changes in your life. And for that is why I'm addicted to entrepreneurship and to entrepreneurs who are on this path to go do this kind of work. So you mentioned the definition of entrepreneur from back in the French. What, why do you, or how do you think you view entrepreneur and is it in a way that's different than how we use that word a lot from time to time? Yeah, I think we've really reserved the word entrepreneur for historically, we've reserved it for people who are running startup companies, people who are part of accelerators, this niche group of people. And what I learned, and quite frankly, I saw myself in that group of people, but what I learned through my research of writing this book was that actually it's a much larger group. The tent should be much larger and we should invite a lot of other people into it. And the reason we should is because it's a treacherous walk. It's a treacherous journey to go on and we need each other to, to go through this journey. And I espoused in the book, I just say, look, this is, I think entrepreneurship is the third main invention of humankind behind fire and stone tools. And we have history from 80,000 years ago on the shores of Morocco. Some tribe found these snails, they put holes in them and they painted them and they started trading them with other tribes hundreds of miles inland. And it's the first evidence we have in human nature in which we shared risk by going to someone who didn't look like us and probably didn't speak like us and probably didn't eat the same food. And saying, you have something I need. I have something you need. Let's trade and come off better because of it. And at the time, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals roamed the earth together. It was not given that Homo sapiens would become us and Neanderthals mm-hmm. would die off. In fact, 
Neanderthals should be, they were stronger, they had bigger brains. There's all sorts of reasons they should have been the dominant species, but they didn't. And I think they did because they figured they, they couldn't figure out how to share resources with one another. And that's what entrepreneurs do. So this is a long history going back thousands of years. And so when you're an entrepreneur today, the reason I wrote The Good Entrepreneur is to not try to get what's yours to the detriment of anybody else, or just because you can, but recognizing you're standing on the shoulders of hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years of work. And your job is to make it a little bit better for the next generation, not just get what's yours and then run off and don't worry about anything else. That kind of brings us to circling back. You mentioned you were a good entrepreneur, (laughs) at least by the modern definition of that word, and you were good at getting yours, so to speak, but you weren't doing too good as as a husband, as a friend, as a father, and all of those sorts of roles. What was going on in your life? Where do you think that came from? What brought that out in you? So I grew up upper upper, uh, middle class, white kid in America and had a lot of things going for me. And around when I was 16, my dad was ended up was sentenced to 16, excuse me, 20 years in prison, served 16 years of, excuse me, served 17 years when I was 16 years old. And I went from this upper middle class life to having to help my mom pay rent. And I have an older brother who's got some mental deficiencies. And so helping with the family and I had to learn a whole new way of operating. No longer was the privilege that I had previously my privilege. And and I took this shame on. I remember specifically getting into a fight in the locker room when I was 16 years old after football practice. And we were joshing around and I said something and the other kid said something. We went back and forth a few times. And I thought I'd ended the argument. And he said to me, Nick, at least when I go home, my dad will be there. Your dad won't be there for 20 years. And what was interesting was everybody had played nice around me in the back of my head. When I went to sleep at night, I thought, what are people saying behind my back? And here it was, right? Push somebody far enough and they're going to actually tell you what they're saying behind your back. And I don't blame that kid at all. I'd said some mean things to him and I probably deserved him to say that. But what I didn't realize at that time is that I ingested those words. I replaced my identity as a child of God for a child of a prisoner. And what that does to you is you always feel like you've got to wake up an hour earlier and hustle a little bit harder and become a little bit greater so that you never get to this core piece of who you really are inside. And that makes you a really good entrepreneur, right? Because you're going to work harder and be more more audacious and take more risks and make sure you manipulate your way to the top. And you can go do that. But the fundamental question we have as man is not that, not what can we do, but what should we do, right? I mean, this is Francis Schaeffer, right? How then should we now live? This is the core of what humanity is. is what, how do we go take the talents that God's given us and then use those to glorify him through whatever our chosen pathway is? And in my case, it's entrepreneurship. My vocation is entrepreneurship. How do you think, how did that affect your faith journey? How did that affect Did you go through that period? A lot of people talk about when something like that happens, a trauma, whatever it may be, being angry with God and those sorts of feelings. How did that play itself out in your faith journey? Yeah. So I had been part of building and selling several businesses. The last one was this airline. I was in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I was being fed at all. I was invited to all the parties. I had arrived. I had my my multi-million dollar home. I had everything I could possibly want. And I just remember once a transaction was done, being completely empty inside. And the truth was my marriage was in shambles and I was drinking too much. My kids didn't know who I was. Ironically, my, my big hole in my heart for my dad not being in my life. And my kids didn't know me. I wasn't in prison, but 
I had created my own prison by needing to build businesses like an airline. And by the grace of God and through the act of the Holy Spirit, I was given the opportunity to go through a program in my church called Celebrate Recovery, which is a, for those of you who don't know, it's a 12-step program that's not specifically for alcohol or drugs like NA or AA is, but it's a 12-step program where you actually walk through the steps. And I say it's a 12-step program for what your favorite sin is. My favorite sin at that time, and still is today, is pride. And I went through the 12-step program, and my sponsor was a guy named Richard Hoffman, who has since passed away. And he was one of these guys that was incredibly successful in life. But he really didn't care what you thought about him. And about three months after I met him, he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. You know, he, he already didn't care, and he really didn't care because he knew he was going to be around for a period of time. And he punched me in the mouth, metaphorically speaking, in a way that I needed to be. I'm, I'm a bit of a bull in a china shop at times, and when I'm pretty imposing. It also and, makes you a good entrepreneur. <laughs> which makes you a good entrepreneur. But it also doesn't make you available for people to give you feedback. And so Richard was this guy that I fully believe God put in my life. And Richard's story, and it's his story, and I'll, it's not mine to tell, but roughly speaking, 20 years previously, Richard had made a mistake, had made a decision that had led to a downfall of his family and another family. And he was at church at the time and he looked around and he didn't know who to go to because everybody who he looked to had perfect lives. Like he didn't feel comfortable acknowledging the decision he'd made that had led to these consequences. And so once he'd processed this again two decades ago, he decided he was going to make himself available and tell his story freely so that anybody who found themselves in the same situation would he would they would make him his first call. And of course, and, truthfully, and, none of those people that he was looking at had perfect lives, but that was his perception, right? <laughs> that was his perception. And, and what he taught me is that when you actually tell somebody your story and you do it vulnerably, you're inviting them back into that same relationship. This is the very lesson of Jesus, right? Jesus, I was on this pod, I was on a podcast just last night with these, it's, <laughs> it was three black men and they talk about talking about life from black men's perspective. They had me on there and I was like, what am I going <laughs> to, what am I going to say about this? And, and what they were talking about was an immersion, right? Jesus immersed himself. He didn't just show up and preach and walk on. He lived there for months with these people and got to know them. And, and Richard was living his life with people. And he ended up living his life with me. And he shared with me things that, that were ugly and true. And he encouraged me to do the same. And so here I am, like everybody's looking at my outside world going, man, he's just hit the lottery. And inside, man, I'm just broken. He's so and, rich. And yeah. Yeah. And man, I started to tell my story. I like, I, as this came true and I ventured out and I thought, who are my safest people? And I would tell them and their response would be, thank you so much for telling me. And then I would venture out to some people who were less safe and their response would be, thank you so much for telling me. And eventually the refrain was, if you only knew, meaning if you only knew how much the headlines in my life do not match what's going on inside of me. And I, after meeting with Richard, I got to meet a guy and spend a lot of time with a guy named John Townsend, who wrote the Boundaries book, who really encouraged me to understand what's going on emotionally and psychologically in our world when we do this. And he's a leadership guru. And he taught me a lot of things around leadership, which is where I'm, my vocation now, which is spending time with leaders in these times. And I, I think the when you in, in the middle of the journey, you can't possibly understand what's going on. But to look back, I can clearly see the hand of God throughout my whole life saying, like, I'm here, I'm putting people in your life. I didn't, have the, my, I didn't have my earthly father there that I wanted. 
But there were several men that came into my life, Richard being one of them and another six or seven men that came into my life, some for a day or two, some for decades, who said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in your life and help you in a way that a father should help a son. Yeah. And, and do you feel, because you've mentioned several times, you still are a bull, you still are this. How are you <laughs> reconciling those traits today? Does that make sense? Yeah. Here's the one thing I've learned. You don't fix yourself. Like, this isn't a finish line to cross. This is, an, this is what John taught me, which is this is an ongoing journey. Yeah. And that's hard because in business, we've got KPIs, we have balance sheets, we have cash flow. Project. We have black and white things that say you're successful or not successful. And there's this, it's this obscure, abstract view of what you're doing. So number one, recognizing that truth has been key to me. And number two, that how I deal with that is I have a daily mantra. I wake up and I respond and I write down or I say to myself, I am a child of God, period, like hard stop. And that means I have all the rights and privileges of that, which means I don't have to hustle, which means I don't have to create my own kingdom, which means I, I have a heavenly father that's looking out for me. That means I have all the rights and privileges around that and responsibilities. And so on this day and this day alone, I'm choosing to remember that. And I'll deal with tomorrow and I'll deal with yesterday. But for today, I'm going to choose to believe that truth. And when I do that, and I don't do it all the time, but when I do that, things go better. Why? Because I'm regurgitating a truth that we've seen. We see in history, we see in the Bible, we see in lives, we see over and over this truth that's coming in that's saying there is a celestial being, there is a God, there is a Holy Spirit, there is a Jesus that is there as a helpmate. And when I choose to let them do what they're designed to do, guess what? My life's a whole lot easier. And so with regards to being a bull or not a bull, sometimes I wake up and decide I want to be a bull. And now, the greatest thing God did is make us in his image. And the worst thing he did is make us in his image because we all run around thinking we're mini God. So best, best on, day of on, my life was when I realized there was a God. Second best day is when I realized it wasn't me. <laughs> him, yes. Yeah. It turns out I make a really crappy God. And I've tried, I've given all my efforts to making a God and I make a really poor one. And so that, that's how I deal with it. I recognize, A, this isn't something I'm ever going to arrive at on this earth. But I also recognize that I can take ownership of by creating a right mindset in the morning to win the day so that the rest of the day, that becomes my rudder for the rest of the day. And that guides my all the words that leave my lips, all the thoughts that are in my heart, all the things that I do as I move forward. And you recognize that some days that works better than others too, because there's days that it don't go so well, I'm sure. There are a ton of days. I'm embarrassed, right? When I get into, I had a situation recently where so just, I'll get really, I'll get really vulnerable with you here. So my wife, this last year was diagnosed with a breast cancer. She's now cancer free, praise God, but she had two major surgeries and it was this shock to our system. We've had this ongoing fight in our marriage about family of origin stuff, right? We bring our all family of origin, our food into our relationships. And I had believed because my dad was gone that I was going to always be abandoned and I couldn't trust anybody but myself. Like, that's a lie that I believe. I can't trust God. I can't trust anybody else. I can't trust... Well, my wife is... She's not a saint, but if there, she's close to being a saint. 24 years. She's an amazing woman. We were in this fight prior to her diagnosis. She gets diagnosed. And, and I... So I, I go... My, my go-to is I isolate, right? Fine. If, you, if I can't trust you and you're going to abandon me in my own mind, I'm going to isolate you. I'm going to freeze you. I'll out. abandon you first in that way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's the, that's protection. the hustler in me. It's protection. It's my protection side. 
So we get into this fight. I go into my isolation mode. We're in this for a couple of days. And then she gets her diagnosis. Here's how like deeply ingrained in my DNA this is. And it pains me to say this. I'm embarrassed to say this. But even after her diagnosis, I still stayed in the I can't trust you mode. Mm-hmm. Like you would think after two decades of marriage to someone, you would just you would drop that and get into I'm going to take care of you. And I'm embarrassed to say this because this has happened in this last year. But she wrote me a seven-page letter. And I read it the first time and I was ticked off. And I read it the second time and I was a little bit less ticked off. And then I read it the third time and I was like, there's some truth in here. And by the time I read it the 12th time, I was like, man, 80% of this is truth. And I had to recognize that I had fallen back in that pattern. And the lie I believe, which is no one is able, I'm not able to trust anybody on this earth. And I'm going to be abandoned. That's my mode. And this is an extreme situation. Cancer is the thing everybody dreads. And here I am, literally, my wife being diagnosed with cancer, and I'm still choosing to protect my own kingdom. So that is an embarrassing aspect of my life. But that's an example of, yeah, some days are better than others. And some weeks are better than others. But when I get into that pattern, it's a dangerous pattern. And I need strong people in my life to punch me in my mouth, metaphorically speaking, to, to wake me up like my wife did. That letter was a punch in my mouth to say, dude, this isn't okay. I'm not okay with this. Now, she went through her own journey. And 10 years ago, she would have never written me that letter. And we would have spiraled out. That's what we'd have done. That's our pattern. But we've evolved. The people, the, everybody who gets married two or three or four times in their life, and if you're lucky, it's the same person. And the person I married 24 years ago is not the same person today. Thank God, because Absolutely. She's, she yeah. gives me that. So anyway, so that's an example of some days better than others. And, and thank you for sharing that. And again, I want folks to hear it too, because I think so often we look at people who are on a journey and we think they've arrived and that's not really. And and again, it's back to the, I looked around in church and everybody here had a perfect life. No, they didn't. (laughs) They were all broken too, but they just weren't visibly broken. You didn't see it Mm -hmm. on the outside. Well, that's why it's why alcoholics say. Alcoholics will say, they, they don't say, hey, I used to be an alcoholic. They just say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Because they're acknowledged as an ongoing journey you're on. And I think it, it's a, I go back and forth on this, but man, there's some, it, there's some blessing to the fact that their sins are out in the open in the sense that, or that they're, I shouldn't say their sins, their struggles mm-hmm. are out there in the open. Well, and because it's recognizable. People understand. It's recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine showing up? No, I'm not having a drink. I'm an alcoholic. Like in some respects, that would feel really weird and awkward. But in some respects, if I walked up and said, no, I'm not going to take part in that because I'm, I'm addicted to pride. <laughs> like I could just, I'm out on this one. I don't have to participate. And yet I keep it down inside. It's a fascinating idea to think about that way. And as a child of an alcoholic who okay. started down the road of being an alcoholic, and I will tell you though, there is still a social awkwardness to that. So I would go to a company party where everyone was drinking. And I learned just because it was easier that mm-hmm. I could go to the bartender and ask for a Coke, but ask him to put a swizzle stick. In. Yeah. Everyone assumed I had a run and Coke. Yeah. I just didn't have to explain it. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't that I was ashamed of it. It's just, it's easier to not have to explain it's easier. it to people. Um, yeah. And, but again, it was that moment of, and I never actually quote, became an alcoholic, air quotes around that. And yet I still describe myself as someone who struggled as an alcoholic because, and I don't touch alcohol to this day. The last drink I had was in 1999. So, wow. 
and that and yet even there where it is more so i would agree it's more socially accepted than a sin of pride or a sin of, of arrogance or, or any of these other bazillion sins that we all carry around <laughs> what well, i think the scarlet letter was a really bad idea but imagine there is something oh, yeah. to be like what if you just what if you just had a tattooed we walked in and we're like oh yeah i deal with that too there just be like with this com- camaraderie you walk into a restaurant oh that's my favorite sin too i don't okay. know i think we'd feel a little more comfortable there's a quote about the, my, what was it? My journey, some, I'm paraphrasing because it's not exactly right. And I'll have to go look it up and put it in the show notes, but the, something along the lines of my walk got a lot better when I realized that everyone walking around was what the walking wounded. And when I began to treat others as if they were wounded deeply inside, it got easier. It did. And this is one of the fundamental things, Scott, I think to, that I think is fascinating about Christianity in 2022. I live in Dallas. I live in Dallas and Steamboat Springs, Colorado. But in Dallas, like it's almost it's almost more of a you're almost more of a pariah if you don't go to church. We grew up in Southern California and that was the exact opposite. But right. here it's like this like almost like Sunday country club mentality. And that's not to take away from any of the preachers and all the ministers who are doing their work to try to engage, but it is this like, oh, you go to that church? There's this thing about where you go to church that says something about you, which again goes back to that whole identity. And I forget who it was. I think it was Tozer said, like, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if it's, man, I go to this church because that's where entrepreneurs go, or that's where successful people go, or whatever, or I go to this church because they're not fancy and I want to make sure everybody sees I have torn clothes. It's a sin everywhere, right? It's like this idea that anything between us and God is, that's capturing, is causing us that separation, which is sin. And that, yeah. And that's what the term sin even means is missing the mark. So let's talk a little bit about the book as well. And just, so the book is the good entrepreneur. And you mentioned earlier why you wrote it, but let's unpack that a little bit more. What, who is the book for? What is it about? How would you sum up who should go pick up this book and take a look at it? Yeah. So who should pick up this book is anybody who fancies themselves as an entrepreneur in the sense that they're a risk taker. Right. So it is a how to. It's called The Good Entrepreneur. The subtitle is An Insider's Guide to Building a Principled Business and a Powerful Personal Legacy. It is this idea that there are way there are certain ways to build businesses. And there are certain ways to build out your kingdoms, if you will. And there's right ways and there's wrong ways. And business is never not about profits. If you aren't making money, you're dead. It's oxygen for your business. So profits is the bottom line. But I think particularly in America, profits are the end game. And I'm putting forward this thought that it's never less than profits, but it's so much more than profit. If you are a leader, you have more power. If you're a business owner, leader, CEO, executive, you most likely have more power over the lives of the people who work for you than anybody else in their life. In the sense of this, we spend more time at work these days, awake time at work than we do anywhere else in our life for the most part. So if you can create a culture that is welcoming, that is thoughtful, that is trying to figure out who people are and making sure that their skill sets, their talents are being used appropriately, that you're stretching them, that you're growing them, that you're investing in them versus I'm using somebody and I'm going to throw them out once they don't have any value to me. I'm using somebody on my cosmic chessboard to get what I need to go get to. And and I'm going to shortcut my vendors and I'm going to shortcut 
my community and I'm just going to get what's mine to move on and move on. Then you actually get into this conversation of like actual reformation, actual redemption. And I think that's what we're called to do as Christians is, is this redeeming component to it. And I think if you can turn the hearts of leaders towards this idea that they're actually shepherds, they're actually disciples in some respects, not from a Christian perspective, it doesn't have to be a Christian business or you don't have to like have Bible studies all the time. But if you have these principles that we know are good principles and you put them in your business, then you can change that business and change those lives. And then you can change your community. And by changing your community, you can change your your county and your state and your country and your world ultimately, because you are choosing to invest in a way that is going to change the lives of other people. So my hope is people will read this and go, Hey, look, I need to continue doing what I'm doing because I'm doing a really good job of it. Or I need to adjust what I'm doing, or I have never thought about it this way. Cause when I was taught in business school is who cares anything, any, some of these private equity shops, like at the end of the day, who cares what you do as long as you're, <laughs> as long as you're making money. And I just say, buoy, who cares? We don't need more widgets. We have a lot of widgets. We are addicted to con- consumption. All of our tombstones in America, the majority of our tombstones should read, he or she was a great consumer. And we consume things we don't want to impress people we don't like for reasons we don't even understand. And we don't even know what our basic emotions are. The good entrepreneur is a call for leaders to say, yeah, be really successful and I'll teach you how to go do it. But let's also, once we're successful, recognize what comes after that and the responsibility for that. And that's why I wrote the book. And and it's, so it's a lot of my story of journeys, stories on private planes, a story in prison cells, stories with NFL stars, stories with, it's all the stories. And it's a fun read and it's built to people who are leaders in organizations that want to figure out how to go do that a little bit better. And I love the idea too of the good entrepreneur. So it, just because that's almost a play on words of at first glance, that's how most of us mean yeah. it. The good entrepreneur means they made a lot of money. Yeah. But is that all? It, it, mean, it means virtuous, right? I think about, it's a play a little bit on C.S. Lewis in his Abolition of Man has this essay where he talks about the men without chests. He talks about how the head is the intellect, the spiritual kind of component, and the stomach is the visceral animalistic side of man. But the chest is what is the directional force of how to use the intellect and in, in, in the emotions. It's where courage and honesty comes from. And so if you have, and what he says is like, hey, why are we surprised that we find traitors in our midst? We why are we surprised we remove this chest from our from men and women and we just say go out let your animalistic let your intellectual side go forth and do whatever it finds and guess what it's going to find a lot of different things so why are we surprised when we find traitors i think this is fascinating i just did this little video on this because of president Zelensky. we are watching a legacy being written in real time and i presuppose in this video that i think the reason he's doing this because we're witnessing a man with a chest who's saying directionally i understand it's going to cost me, but this is the right thing to go do. And that's on a national scale. Or that's not an international scale where we're witnessing that, but that's happening every day in our lives. That's, hey, I got an extra dollar back at the donut shop. Do I tell them? That's, hey, I, I'm going to let somebody into my lane on the freeway or not, or cut them off. That There's all these little things that we're doing that add up. Atomic Habits with James Clear, right? This is 1% better tomorrow and you have to change life a year from now, right? All of these things add up and that's the good entrepreneur side of it, which is a virtuous Another way to say it, I, it's not a Christian book. I have a couple of Bible verses in there, but it's you could call it the virtuous entrepreneur. I just thought that was a little too, a little too highbrow for what I really wanted to communicate. But yes, you could call it that. And again, like, like, to your point, it's not an explicitly Christian book. 
And that's not the intent behind it. And yet, like you said, it doesn't matter if the business has a fish on the door to be able to be what you're talking about. They don't have to have a fish on the door. And in fact, sometimes they have a fish on the door and they're not doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, if my toilet's clogged up, I don't care if you have an ink juice on your card. Like, just come unclog my toilet. Yeah. And, and, but here's the thing I know to be true. All truth is God's truth. So if you write towards truth and if you speak towards truth and you consume truth and if you share truth, that's worshiping God in the highest, in my opinion. And so this isn't this is a worshiping of God for me, which is this is truths I know to be true in my own life, and I've witnessed it in other entrepreneurs' lives. So it's a history of that. So let's acknowledge that and let's go forth and hold ourselves to a higher standard and create a legacy that's gonna live well beyond the time we've spent on this earth. So in the book, I know you talk about 12 separate principles within the book. And with this idea of becoming a good entrepreneur, I, we don't have time to unpack all 12. But for somebody that's hearing this and is going, yeah, I'm struggling with this. I'm not doing what I really feel what is right. What are some of the, whether it's most important or first steps, what beyond picking up the book and taking a read of it, yeah. which I know is part of it, but what would they need to do first? Yeah. So the first step is courage. Principle number one is the, the good entrepreneur chooses courage over fear. And what's interesting is courage is not an op, or courage is not the opposite of fear. It's not the mm-hmm. removal of fear. Courage is what you get to when you pass fear. So the way God made us is we have this amygdala in our brain and it's a fight or fleece, freeze part of our brain. And it's constantly aware. It's the guard dog. And it's great because it's provided us a survival over thousands of years to get to where we are today. But when we don't take an account of what truth is, we let that rule our lives when we stay in our homes and we don't go out and we don't go do what God's called us to do. It's the parable of the talents. And so the first step is you got to have courage to start the journey. You can do a lot of things really well, but if you don't have the courage to start, you don't have a journey. It's, it's over. And that's the first step. And I think there are one of, the, one of the principles is tell the truth or at least don't lie, right? Like always seek and tell the truth. What does that mean? Seeking and telling the truth is one of the scariest things in the world to go do because if, if I acknowledge that I have blind spots and you tell me the truth about my blind spots and I become aware of that, that's a giant Pandora's box because I believe something to be true that wasn't true. And you brought me to that, you brought that to my attention. Richard Hoffman brought that to my attention, my pride. My wife brought that to my attention. My counselor brought that to my attention. Man, that really sent me on a spiral because I thought if what I knew to be true is not true, now what else isn't true? And I think this is the yin-yang symbol, right? We've got, in the, you've got one side, which is black, that represents chaos. And you've got one side, which is white, which represents order. And when we were cast out of the garden, I think we've constantly been fighting to get back to order. We had order in the garden, then we moved into chaos, and we're fighting to redeem ourselves back in the garden. But in chaos, there's a white dot, which symbolizes that even in the midst of chaos, we can have a redemption story. We can do what we need to do to redeem it. And in the white side, we have a black spot, which means, man, chaos can get in and corrupt a snake in the garden, a drop of sewer in a magnum of champagne. And those two coexist. And I think the proper stance is not completely in order. The proper stance is one foot in order, knowing truth, knowing what you, who you are and what your identity is, and one foot in chaos because that's where growth comes from. One of the things I just want to encourage people to do is like, we aren't called to live a comfortable life. We put enough money away retire properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then just go do your thing. No, that's not what we're called to do. Retirement didn't exist before World War I. This is a brand new concept that we put enough money away so that we can feel 
old in the day and drink Mai Tais by the beach. We're called to have one foot in chaos. Why? Because we're constantly growing. We're constantly redeeming. That's what we're called to go do. Whether you're a business leader or an employee or a spouse or a friend, that's where we're called to spend time. And then come back to order and refresh and renew and, and go through this process. But also don't be afraid to go out to the dark night because that's where we need to go be salt and light. And you can't, yeah, you can't live fully in chaos any more than you can live fully in order and be, but it's, but that's in a way, go back to Paul. I, I'm, I find comfort when I had everything and I found comfort when I had nothing that being content because I'm content, not because of the external nature of the world. Yeah. If I, if what I say to my morning in the morning is true, that I'm a child of God, hard stop, period, then I can have $10 billion in the bank and be completely content, or I can be on the street and completely content. And I can tell you, having spent hundreds of hours in a private plane, that you can be in a private plane and completely in prison. And having spent hundreds of hours in a prison visiting room, which you couldn't find two farther places apart on this earth, that you can be completely free in prison, right? The plane is a symbol of power, but it isn't power. And I think that's this juxtaposition. We have these beliefs that if I get this job, I get this raise, I get this car, I get this house, my kids get into this right school, my wife stops doing the annoying thing that she does, whatever that is, my life will be okay. And the reality is it's just a big fat lie. Until we come comfortable with this idea that I'm a child of God, peace, hard stop, I'm done. Whatever happens, because I've got a heavenly father that's looking out for me, man, we're going to be on this journey of hustling and that is exhausting. And we're going to be really sad when it all comes to the end because we've wasted so much time. Agreed. Before I, I move to a few questions that I like to ask all of the guests, anything else from the book that you think is a really important thing for people to have as a takeaway? So at the end of each chapter, I give, I'm a, so I do some leadership training now with executives, a tip of the spirit executives, own business owners or C-level executives. At the end of our time together, I always give them homework. And, at the, and so I do the same thing in the chapter. So for every principle, there's a homework assignment. And they are, they, some of them are really simple and some of them are really complex, but every one of them is tied back to it. So if you're looking for something to go, not just read and put it up, but I want to think about what I'm doing. My goal, when you work and publish a book, the publisher, you, you set goals out and they, and they said, what's your goal to sell in the first week and the, you know, the first month or whenever? And I said to them, look, I don't really care. What I care about is that a book this book will be selling 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 50 years from now. I have a rule I stole from C.S. Lewis that if every book I read of someone who's alive, I read two books of someone who's dead. Because if someone's dead and a book is still being published, that means it's like past the standard. So I hope to be dead in this book will still be being read by people. And so beware, don't read the book if you don't want to be changed. If you're comfortable with where you are, don't read the book. But if you're uncomfortable and you have that nagging feeling and you don't know who to talk to and you don't know where to go and you're looking for some direction, that's that's where to go in the book because not only will you read the stories, but you'll also get this like feedback of, okay, so now that we've gone through this and you've heard these stories, here's what your job is to do on yourself. Yeah. I actually love books that have action items for us to do because uh, otherwise I think oftentimes a book will become shelf help as opposed to self-help. Oh, I like that. You got to use that. Can I steal that from you? Yeah, it's okay. I stole it from somebody else. <laughs> I don't even remember who I stole it from anymore. It's been so long. But uh, so one of the questions I like to ask all my guests is my brand is inspired stewardship. And I run things through that lens of stewardship when I think about the world. So 
what does the word stewardship mean to you? And what has the impact of that meaning been on your life? So I had a mentor in my life, one of these men who was my surrogate father, his name was Calvin Howell. And he taught me a lesson. He used to come through Dallas and every time he'd come through Dallas twice a year, he lived in Nashville and he had, he'd come through Dallas and we'd have breakfast. And at the end of our breakfast, he'd say, Hey, you want to come out and see my map? We'd go out to his car and he'd pull out this map of the United States and on, he'd pull this out and pull on his trunk of his car. And on the map were dozens and dozens of, of little colored dots all over the country. And twice a year, Calvin Howe was this little man. He was five, six, bald. When he smiled, his eyes disappeared. Just this like, he was like a human emoji. He was, be- he was a beautiful man. And every single one of those dots represented something that him and his wife had invested in, a, an organization he had invested in. And twice a year, he'd get in his car and he wouldn't call him and say, I'm coming to visit, put, on the, put, up, put out the parade for me. He'd just show up and say, hey, what are you doing with what I've given you? And I asked him how he got to this point in his life. He was in his 60s when he was telling me this. He said, my wife and I years ago decided that once we hit a certain level, and it was not little, he had multiple homes, he was an incredibly wealthy man. We decided we were going to give it, we were going to adjust it for inflation every year and we were going to give away everything else. And that freedom that's given us has given us so much joy. And he told me this when I was in college. He said, hey, Nick, so I encourage you to pick a number, make it big, make it audacious. And the number we picked was audacious. It still is audacious, but it's not the number I would have picked right now. It's what I picked when I was in my 20s. But the fact that we had that number has given my wife and I so much freedom. We live what we call right now, it's my next book's coming out called Micro Retirement. And it's this idea, we do two weeks of revenue generation. She's an ER and I do some coaching. And then we do two weeks of non-revenue generation. And it's this idea that we never want to retire. We always want to be doing something. And instead of waiting until we're old and we can't do anything else and retiring, we're going to do a little bit of that now. And Calvin, from a stewardship perspective, said basically, look, do what you need to do, but after that, acknowledge what's not yours and then just give it all away. And that's freedom. So when I think about stewardship, it's this question of what are the resources I have and how can I use those to glorify God and what I'm doing and spend that. And that's my thought on stewardship and how you manage resources. I feel incredibly free by doing that. One of the last principles in the book is that of leaving a legacy. And my favorite question that I ask all the guests is, if I invented this magic machine and I could pluck you out of the chair where you sit today and transport you into the future 100 to 150 years, and you were able to look back on your life and see all the impacts and all of the ripples and all of the the little connections that have been left behind, what do you hope the impact is that you've left behind on the world? This is going to sound a little sacrilege, but I think at the I'm always struck by at the end of, I forget which C.S. Lewis book it is, one of the, which foot Narnia book it is. Lucy's looking out at the Aslan down on the beach and he says, she says, is he safe? And the response is, oh no, he's not safe, but he is good. And I don't want to ever be thought of as safe. And I do in some respects, but I want to be thought of as, no, but he lived a good life. And I want people to speak about me in the way they spoke about Richard Hoffman. He, right before he passed away, Jim Beckett here in Dallas held a dinner for about 20 of his friends. And we all went around and did a living memorial for Richard. He was skin and bones. But we went around and said how he impacted our lives. And every man had a story. And at the end, someone said, hey, Richard, I'm going to tell you my story. But before I do, I, 
when the heck did you work, man? Because he was really successful. But he said, Nick said he met with you at 9 a.m. on Thursday. And John said he met with you at 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. on Friday. And we all had these stories of when we met. And Richard said, when I threw my life away 20 years ago, and I didn't have anybody to turn to, I decided I was going to be the man that people could turn to. And I simply have no greater joy than being getting that call in the middle of the night to help somebody out. You can't find a better place on this earth. So I hope that at some point I walked away from that dinner thinking that's part of what I hope my legacy will be with regards to that. What's coming next? What's what's on the roadmap? You mentioned second books in the works, but what what else is in the pipeline? I'm just really focused right now on, as I mentioned, I do some coaching. So I do two things. I, I meet one-on-one with leaders, a small group of leaders, and then I lead a group cohort through a 12-month program called Advanced Leadership Training. And it's intense and it's intentional and it leads to life change. And I think they're incredibly sacred moments. And so I am really focused on being the best I can be at those moments because people trust me with their stories. And I want to make sure I'm present and I want to make sure I'm able to listen professionally, listen intently, and be able to give them that that feedback. And so quite frankly, I have no desire to scale. Everybody's like, are you going to scale? Are you going to hire people? You gonna... No, I'm not going to hire anybody. I'm not going to try to scale. It's a completely inefficient business. Like the entrepreneur in me is screaming a little bit because there's no way to scale this. If I'm not working, there's it doesn't happen. But man, when I get to get engaged, I'm transformed by that. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. And so I'm, I want to be great at that. And then I love reading and I love writing. And my goal is to write eight or 10 more books. So I want to become a really good writer. And I'm going to spend my time loving on people and writing books that hopefully have an impact. You can find out more about Nick over on Instagram as Nick Kennedy underscore IG or on Twitter as Nick Kennedy underscore TW. He's also on LinkedIn under Nick Kennedy Coaching or find out more about the book or Nick's coaching or other things that are coming down the pipeline on his website at nickkennedycoaching.com. Nick, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? Go do big things, create a dent in the universe and become good entrepreneurs. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures. Develop your influence and impact the world.